So we're talking about relationships, family relationships, and we're talking about challenges in family. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, are the, is the verses that we're going to be dealing with over the next couple of weeks, I think, probably two or three. Um, it all depends on how much we can get out of it. Um, there's probably lots and lots to say here. So let's start by just reading our text and just seeing what it says for us. It says, uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. All our children are left, so they're not even here to hear this one. So that's all right. It'll be interesting to, to go through this. We'll ask Jesus to help us right now. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come around your word. Lord, there is nothing mon- mundane about your word, Lord Jesus. Your word is wisdom. It is life. And Lord, as we come to it, Lord, we ask that you'd open our ears to hear what you would say, Holy Spirit. Not just to hear your words, Lord, but to do your word, Father. Lord, we pray that after today, Lord Jesus, there would be within our lives a deposit of your word, an engrafted word which is able to save us. And Lord, we ask that we would be transformed to be like Jesus throughout this time in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right. I suppose when when I first read these these verses I thought mundane, children obey your parents and this is right. Until I started to think about society and I started to think about the, the, what's happening in, in society today and I, I thought, man, this is really applicable for our lives, extremely applicable for our lives because there's so much. I mean, sometimes you read a passage of scripture and you think uh, that's just ordinary and then you stop to think about it and the it's not as ordinary, ordinary as it is, as profound and so deep with meaning and, and deep with um, a message for us. So let's slow this whole process down. Let's start to think a little bit about what, what's being said here. Life is a whole lot of different stages. As we're going through life, we start very young. We start with a miller or we, and then we, we, we come through life and we go into childhood and then we go to adolescence and we go to marriage and sort of settle down in a family or situation then we get into the old age and then we get in the final stage of senior years where we start to uh, prepare to depart this land so life is full of stages and as we look at life and as we go through life we discover that those stages are quite marked in fact if you if you were studying child welfare or if you went to university, you would, you would hear about a guy called Erickson. And who's heard of Erickson? In the eight stages of... Uh, hi, Courtney. We said hi to you before, but you weren't here. Lovely to have you here. That's all right. They're going to come and give you a hug as you're going out. If you're not into hugs, don't worry. It's all right. <laughs> okay. Just give them to me if you don't want them. I'll have them. So these are, I, I've, I've taken the eight stages and summarized them into five, and, and, and this is what he says. So today we'll be just dealing with two of them. But the, from zero to two is what we call infancy, and that's where there's, deal with issues of trust and mistrust. And the building, the virtues that children are building in that time is hope. Uh, 
childhood from 3 to 12 years old, it should be broken into other sections, but we'll just go from 3 to 12 just because we don't want to make it too. They deal with autonomy and shame and initiative and guilt, and they have purpose and competence is established in their lives as they develop in those, those stages of their lives. Adolescence is from 12 to 19. Actually, it's, that used to be from 12 to 19, but it actually has gone now from 12 to about 35 because individuals stay at home longer. And this, I'm serious, this is in the textbooks now. Individuals stay at home longer, and because they stay at home longer, they, they don't grow up and leave house. And uh, adulthood is really sort of marked when they individuate and they leave home and they go out and start their own home or be in that place by themselves. And that's when they, it's considered that adolescence is over. They become an adult in that sense. So because people are staying home at longer, they're considered to be part of the adolescent or post-adolescence, but not quite adult yet. And uh, you'll find that that scenario is happening a lot in, in, um, in places now where, where, where young men and young women are staying at home much, much longer than, than, than leaving. So it's a little bit old, this idea. Middle age is between 41 to 65. Young adulthood is between uh, 20 to 40. Um, and then senior years are from 65 onwards. And each of those stages has a particular way of being, a particular challenge that faces individuals as they're going through those stages. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and we're going to... We're going to um, deal with the, the, the verses in blue today. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. We're going to deal with honoring your mother and father probably next week when we come to dealing with the adult or the adolescent years because that's when it's really interesting to see the honoring bit. Hey. Okay, here are the two stages. Stages that infancy for zero to two, trust and mistrust, where they're developing a hope and will, and childhood from three to 12, where they were developing autonomy, shame, initiative uh, versus guilt. So there's some challenges that they are facing here. So here we are. It says in this passage, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The word obey is an interesting word because it, it just not do what I say. It says, hear what I say and then do what I say. So this whole aspect of listening is involved in this whole process of obedience. You really can't obey until you hear properly. And if you're not listening, you're not going to hear well enough to obey right. So listening is involved in this whole idea of obedience. So why is listening and obedience essential for this stage of life? We're talking about from zero to two. Why is it really important that children at infancy learn to listen to their parents? Well, what do infants think like? Well, infants don't really think very much at all. It's just more or less, um, well, they're thinking, but they're not thinking in words so much. They're thinking in impulse and they're thinking in emotion and they're thinking those thoughts are are abstract thoughts in the sense that they're not uh, cognitive, rational thoughts. So at this stage, they're dealing with things like dependency. They need you to be there. They can't survive without you child can't survive you take Miller she can't survive without mum and dad it's impossible if you put Miller on the ground and said okay get to it and you walked away she'd die there's no way that she could live she's completely dependent and she's needing direction as she gets older she needs direction I see a little boy walking around here Um, there he is sleeping on dad he's he's needing direction he's wandering around looking at things and I think to myself I got to 
I'll grab him and I'll just hold him and I'll give him some direction. I'll give him some support. I'll, I'll, I'll give him some nurturing and nourishment and I'll just put a sit him down here on my lap there, you know, because that's what he needs. He needs to have some sort of level of direction. If you let him wander, he'll just wander out there and he'd just keep on wandering onto the street and he'd wander in front of a car and there'd be no child left anymore. He needs us. He needs a parent. He needs an adult. He needs someone to look after him. That's that age of zero to two. They have some challenges, though. There's some challenges that take place when they're at that age. And what they do is they manipulate. Have you seen that with children? They can't really rationalize very much. And that manipulation starts very, very early. Like, you will see it starting in Miller probably in about three or four months. No way. <laughs> well, it was like that with you, Nathan. I mean, three, three months old, and he was aware when we were in the room... And he was aware when we left. And he made it very clear that he wanted us to stay in the room with him. And if we left without him, that he wanted to come along with us, you know. And so he would holler and he would shout and he would scream and yell and cry. And um, he, would, he would just be terrible. We decided we'd go out. Jen and I would go out and have a lovely time together, you know. Have a date night, you know. It sounds very fleshly, doesn't it? But it's not. We had a date night and we, thought we had a, a person come in and she was going to look after Nathan. Nathan was just about three or four months old. And so I said, well, Nathan, you know, well, no, he said she's a bit older than that, wasn't he, Jen? Where is Jen? She's out with the kids. She was probably, he was probably about one. I said, now, you be a good boy who's walking. You be a good boy and uh, we'll be back shortly. Well, he started crying when we left. And at nine o'clock, two hours later... I, I rang up and she was crying (laughs) and he was crying still (laughs) and I went back and he was so upset you know because he was just not handling the fact that you know you know we were there so at night time he would he would wake up at night time and he want to play and he would start bellowing and yelling and then he'd go to sleep and we'd have to encourage him to close his eyes because he wouldn't want to do that he want to get up and play one night we heard the banging of pots and pans in the kitchen I wonder what, somebody's breaking in and you know how your heart goes, you know, and then it was a little noise and it was the child in the dark, in the cupboard with the pots and the pans playing. So that was the way he was. It was just his life. He just liked to do that. But he was very manipulative, you know. He's not like that anymore, is he? Very manipulative. You, it, he'd let you know when he wasn't happy and then if he wasn't happy, you had to jump through the hoops. So one of the, one of the things that we did is like, I used to spank him on his nappy, of course, and speak very firmly to him. I came up once on a holiday, and he started this routine, which is in the middle of the night, one o'clock in the morning, and off you go. And you think, okay, got up, and, and grand, Nana picked up. Oh, don't stay in bed. That's fine. I'll get him, my grandson, off you. Pick him up. Stay, ah, da, da. And, of course, he, she's being controlled by him. Like he's got, he's got the idiot controls on. Come on, Grandnanny, you're going to be doing what I want to do. You know, she can't settle him down because he's not settling down anywhere. Give him to me. Nathan, shut up and go to sleep. Put him down there. Put, put, put on his nappy. Just to let him know. He looks up at me. He smiles. <laughs> nice to have you around, Dad. Goes to sleep. What he was doing? What was he doing? What was he thinking? I just feel like I want some 
reinforcement around me, you know, that someone bigger and stronger is in control. So that was the way it was. Nathan was really manipulative. Have you had a two-year-old or one zero to two-year-old and they begin to manipulate? When things aren't the way they very much like them to be, what do they do? Make a lot of noise and start to cry. So you can start feeling really, really guilty because you're not giving them what they want. That's where they are. That's their only way of control. They feel insecure. They feel like they need to have boundaries around them, but they... Keep on pushing those boundaries away and running their own way. They refuse to listen and they refuse to accept responsibility for their actions. You notice it? They do something. It's like Johnny comes in and says, Johnny, don't touch that. He look at you. He say, don't touch that, Johnny. He goes, Max has learned not to touch it, but he'll go there and then he'll go away and he'll come back again and he'll look at you. And then look back at you again. That's the game. That's what they do. From zero to two, they play with you. Now, you can get really frustrated about that. You can get oh, what, so controlled by their noise and by their crying that you, become, you get beside yourself. You just can't handle it anymore. You can get so frustrated with that. It's like, I just, I, I just want give it away. Give it to somebody else. Because they can get so controlling. But you need to be firm and you need to recognize that this is where they're living. This is what happens at this stage of their life. And they are so inquisitive and so self-centered. Everything revolves. They don't have the capacity to think about others. It's just not in them to think about others. They only ever think about themselves when they're that age. You can't really train them to be selfless. <laughs> it's not part of what they're thinking about. So children at that age are very preoccupied about themselves, what they want, and they're letting you know exactly what's going to be happening. So what are they actually doing? What are they learning when they're going through these difficult things, when they're doing that stuff? What are they doing? They're trying to learn two things. Can I trust you or not? That's what they're trying to learn. All of that exercises, all of that pushing, all of that controlling is really saying, can I trust you? And... Who's in control here? That's what they're asking. They're asking, can I trust you and who's in control? And those two lessons are going to be learned at that stage of their life. From zero to two, they're going to learn who's in control of their life and whether they can trust people or not. That's the whole thing. That's what they're trying to learn. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, it says, train up a child in the way that he will go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So whatever you do, when the children are growing, whatever you do, whatever you do is part of the training and, and it's, part, it's laying down a foundation in their life and it's building them into a character which will carry them through for the rest of their lives. Whatever you do. If you get manipulated, they'll learn to manipulate all their lives. If you refuse manipulation and show them that there's control and they have to do what they do, then they'll learn with, to live within controls. You are actually laying down some foundations from zero to two. Even though it doesn't seem like it, they are trying to ask these questions of you. Can I trust you or not? And who really is in control of my life? Am I in control of my life or is, some, is somebody else in control of me? That's what they're trying to find out. Well, the assumed response to those two questions should be mum and dad are trustworthy you can trust us we're here 
We'll always be here for you. That's the assumed result. And mum and dad are in control. That's what we're assuming. They should learn that from zero to two. They should learn that mum and dad are trustworthy. You've got a good mum and dad here. They're trustworthy. They'll be there. They're cleaning your nappy. They're washing your clothes. There's more clothes to put on. There's more food on the table. Mum and dad are trustworthy. You know, set the kid up on top of the fridge, jump to daddy. He'll just jump to daddy because, you know, he trusts dad. Remember, we were in Runcorn State High School. Where's... Emily, remember Emily? You were a little blonde-haired climber. You don't remember this? I remember it. You climbed up on top of the roof of a building, of a temporary block. And we came out and there's Emily standing on the roof of a building. I'm looking up and said, Emily! Well, she climbed up this little skinny fence and I don't know how she got up there, but we were there underneath and I said, Emily, jump to Uncle Mark. Seriously, you're on top of a building, Barbara, would you jump? Would you jump to Uncle Mark? You know what? I'm glad you were a little girl. You would have seen that uh, Chinese man caught that girl that dropped from a... You saw that on the news? Yeah, that same sort of thing. She jumped and I I grabbed her before she hit the floor. Kids, they do that. They trust. They learn to trust or they learn not to trust. That's what they're doing at that period of time. And the assumed response at those situations is, yes, mum and dad are trustworthy and they are in control. But what if the parents aren't? What if their parents are not trustworthy? What if the parents are not in control? What if the child doesn't learn to trust and the child doesn't learn to be controlled at those point of lives? Well, kids can get stuck in the process and grow up into adults with distrust and control issues. And that's where it comes from, right at the very beginning. It starts right back then. Where did that problem of refusing to let people control you or or being living with it, where did that really begin? It starts right back with zero to two. Where did this idea of I can't trust anybody come from? It's laid down really early in their lives. Those ideas of distrust are laid down really early in their lives. And the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, it says, hope deferred. Remember, hope is the end. You know, as you're going through from zero to two, you're trying to give this child hope so that they look at you and there's a hope in their lives. There's the sense of hope. They, ha- they have a confidence in their lives. There's a sense of expectations. They, if somebody says something, they'll do it. You know, if somebody is, they, they've got this sense of control in their lives because they, everything's together and it's what it should be, you know. So this hope is nurtured in them. If that's not happening, it's a sense of hopelessness that they get. And then hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so you get adults growing up that haven't really dealt with those issues of trust and haven't dealt with issues of control. Longing fulfill is a tree of life, it says. Okay, now let's stop and think now. This is not just about raising kids then. This is about dealing with ourselves. Because we've all been zero to two. And in that age of zero to two, we've all had experiences in our lives as we were growing up that were probably not the best. Laid a foundation in our lives for mistrust, maybe laid a foundation in our lives for battles with control. 
But the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says in verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put away, I put ways of childhood behind me. I put away childishness, if you like. You know, some of us have to just stop and think about it. You know, why do I have such difficulty in getting along in life? Maybe that stems right back to when we're kids, hey? And some of the stuff that we're hanging on to is childish. And we need to grow up. We need to grow up in our lives with God. We need to start saying, you know what? I've got to start trusting. Or I've got to start learning to live within control rather than pushing all the time, pushing the boundaries. You know, we need to look and recognize that manipulation, refusal to listen or to accept responsibility for actions like blaming other people rather than taking responsibility for your own life, that's infantile. That's like zero to two. And when you see those things happening in your life, you find yourself, you know, if you get yourself in trouble, you start looking around for whom you can blame or you're blaming something else. It's not taking responsibility for your own life. That's like you're caught somewhere in the past. And being an adult means you have to stand up and say, okay, let's see if I can take responsibility for my life here first. Let's see if I can learn to be adult now. You know, it's time to grow up. If you look at Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews struggled with these guys. He says, look, he says, by this time, he said, I should be treating you and feeding you meat. He says, but I can't feed you meat any longer. He says, because you are so dull at hearing. You know, they're not listening to him. He says, you are children, not adults. So here's this idea of childishness. They're not willing to listen. He said, I've been teaching you all this time. He says, and I want to feed you meat now. He says, I can't move you onto meat. He says, I've got to give you milk. What's milk? It's the, yeah, I've got to put you back on the breast again. Infantile. Infantile. Why? Because you are hard and dull of hearing. You're not listening to what's being said. You just block it out. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. Talk to the hand. I have my own mind made up. That's infantile. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's talking to them. He says, I wanted to treat you like adults, but I can't. He says, because you are worldly, you are carnal, you are babes. He says, I have to feed you milk again. Infantile. Why? Because there was discord and squabbling and fighting amongst them. The self-centeredness was just ruling their lives. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says to the Galatians, he says, if you are still in bondage to the world, you are a child, an infant. You're in bondage to the things of the world. So you think about those things. Am I ensnared, enslaved to habits in the world? Am I squabbling and fighting with other people around me? Am I divisive? Am I, am I, am I in problems with, with people like that? Am I not listening to people? Don't want to be told anything by anybody else? Listen, this is not a symptom of being yourself. I'm an individual. This is a symptom of being an infant. Spiritual infant. It's time to grow up, to put away infantile thoughts and to clothe ourselves with maturity. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, it says, you are, he, he, he was teaching in Ephesians and saying that they, he would bring them into truth so that they were not tossed around by every wind. He says, so we no longer be children tossed by every wind of doctrine like they didn't know what they believed. Couldn't work it out. 
tossed to and fro, to and fro. He said, no, that's all infantile. We need to get out of that infantile state. We need to recognize that immaturity is only a stage that we must move on in life. We don't have to live there and say, that's me. Just get used to it. That's just me. You need to stop and say, no, no, no. The infantile behavior is just a stage that you're going to. Just imagine if you got a child at two, you've seen how strong-willed they are and how forceful they are. And how they, and this child doesn't want to do what it's told. It wants to do everything it wants to do, you know. It wants to touch what it wants to touch. It wants to go to bed when it wants to go to bed. It wants to play when it wants to eat what it wants to eat. It doesn't want to do anything it's told. It doesn't want to listen to you. It wants to just do its own thing. Now, take that and put it in a teenage body. What do you get? Well, pretty much what we've got now. Hanging around in society. You listen to them. They're walking around. They're talking at you. Don't you tell me what to do. I'm not listening to you. I'll do what I want to do. It's about me. I'm in control of my life. Don't put any boundaries around me. What do you got there? Infantile. But it's in an adolescent body. No, wait, stop, wait, wait. No, don't, don't just blame adolescents. Now take it and put it in a 40-year-old body. What do you got? You got a divorcee. You got a person who's decided that I'm not going to control myself any longer. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live for myself now. He's going to pay for my thing. You know, I'm going to do what I want to do. Don't you give me your rules and your rules. I'll just do what I... You've got an infant in an adult body. But stop there. Stop there. Now put it in a 67-year-old body. You've got, you got an, an obnoxious person. In an 80-year-old body, you've got a, somebody in a, in a nursing home that just will not will not play the game. You know what? They thought that that was just them. That infantile is a stage that you move through. It's taking you somewhere. It doesn't have to be your state. Okay. The test really is to be childlike. Not childish. Childlike, not childish. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, Jesus says it's, no, it's, it's good to be like a child. This is at the point of time that the disciples came up to Jesus. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they're debating about who's going to be the ones who can control, who's going to have the most power. You know? This is infantile thinking. They want to take control. And then Jesus called a little child to him and he set him in the midst of them. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are con- converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what he's actually doing with these guys is say, Guys, you are just babies. He says, you're, you're, you're debating amongst yourself who's going to be the one in control, control issues, who's going to be the greatest hear this thing you know who's going to have the most trust you know and he's saying you got it all wrong he says look at this child 
look at this child. This child, so being childlike, was a good thing. Why? Well, they were dependent. They recognized they were dependent on Father, and they trusted Father. And they yielded to Father's control. So that attitude of being trusting of God, and that attitude of letting God control you was a good thing. And he says, you've got to become like that if you've got to get to heaven. So what was Jesus saying to imitate? He's imitating this hope in God, childlike trust and dependence on the Father and humility and submission to the Father's will. That's what he's actually asking them to imitate. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If we're children of God, then God is our dad. God is our father. If he's our father, then the issues of when we come into the kingdom of God, the first issues that we're coming into in infantileness with them is, can I trust you, Father God? Can I trust you? And who's in control? If you are still fighting with the control of God and not yielding to his control, if you say, I don't, don't, don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. I want to do my life and have God on the... And sort of you're, you're wrestling with God's control. You know what? You are still a baby. Spiritual baby. Between zero and two. Well, that's the issues that they deal with. From zero to two. If, you don't, if God says, turn that off and come and spend some time in prayer and you go, no, I want to do that myself. Well, you're a baby. If you're an adult, if you're mature, when God spoke to you and said, I want you to put $4 something or other in the, for the mandarins, adult would say, or a mature person would say, of course, not a problem. A child would, uh, can I do it? Is she watching now? That's infantile. Come back into your spiritual walk on a daily basis. Focus in there on your spiritual walk. Are you still a child? I don't care how old you are. Do you wrestle with God's divine will for your life? Are you submissive to him or are you rejecting of him? Can he speak to you and you obey? Do you trust that he knows the best for your life? Do you put your hand in his and say, I trust you even though you... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff. I trust you, Jesus. Wherever you take me, I trust you. Whatever you feed me, I'm going to eat it. I, I just trust you, Jesus. Or are you questioning about who should really be in control? If I, if I trust him, he's going to take me down a wrong path. These are infantile thoughts, and we need to grow up. It's time to put away childish things and to clothe ourselves with maturity. So we looked at trust versus mistrust. That's zero to two. Now we'll look at from three to 12, where they talk about autonomy. Autonomy is this, I am my own person. I'm me, not you. I have a sense of myself. And shame is that, shame and guilt, because it'll go hand in hand, because there's a sense of shame means that you have to have some sense of you've done something wrong. And initiative is, is getting out and starting to do something. All these things are part of that development of life. So you get the initiative, starting new things, the industry, busy little boys, you know, from two to three, four, five, six. Kids start to do things. They initiate things. They start doing things. You know, he starts a stamp collection. They start 
collecting stamps or he starts doing some coloring in or he starts building blocks and he starts creating stuff. Or he starts painting or he starts writing or he start, he's starting a whole lot of new things. His initiative, he's, he's starting to do something and he gets good at stuff. He starts doing it. I like that. I, I start hitting the ball. I start hitting the ball again. I, start hit, I get rewarded for hitting the ball. I'm going to keep on hitting that ball. Everybody thinks I'm good when I'm hitting the ball, you know. And the, they, get this, they get to start to be confident. Kids, they're learning to do things. I can tie my shoe. Can you tie your shoe? No, my mother ties mine. They're doing things. They're learning things. And so they get feeling good about that. Also, they learn things about morality. They're prone to have fear. They have separation anxiety. You know what separation anxiety is? You leave them at school for a day and they cry because they miss mummy. Where's mummy? I want my mummy. Yep. They understand this seriousness of consequences too. They start to realize that if you touch that, you're going to get a smack. Or if you eat that, it's going to be bad. You know, if you touch that, it'll burn. They're learning there's a consequence, a serious consequence. You don't do that. I told you not to do that. If you do that, you'll hurt yourself. Oh, baby, I hurt myself. My mother said to me, I was a little older than three, or I was maybe in the three to 12. She says, do not jump in the river. We had a little river that ran past our place, a little creek that ran. It had stones in the bottom. It's still there. It's still bubbling past and fresh water. You could still drink out of it. You'd get down and drink out of the river in New Zealand. It's lovely and fresh. Then a dead cat would float past you, you know. <laughs> but it was nice water, sweet water. It was Artesian water coming out on the water. We, and we had a swing and we swing across it. And she'd say to us, do not jump in the water. But we are always smarter than mum. So we'd get out and we'd swing out there and go right around and swing out and come back onto the land on the other side. You know how you do that. You come back again and take a bigger run and then swing out. Then if we let go here, we could get onto the other side and back onto the shore again, you know. You come out and let go here, let go now, and land in the creek, you know. So we'd do that a number of times and nobody got hurt. It was just mum being silly, hey. She said, there are broken bottles in there and one day you'll cut your foot. Ah, oh, yeah. Bare feet, summer's day, lovely creek, let's jump into it. Oh, what was that? Jump out. Your heel is hanging off now. There's a bottle underneath there that's just gone up and it's just cut your heel like that. You know, it's just a big flap of heel hanging on the Oh, there you What else would you do? Yeah. Mom, guess what? I jumped in the creek. Consequence. Get on your bike and ride to the doctor. That was it, wasn't it, Mum? Get on your bike and ride to the doctor. You know, I'll have a bleed to death two hours later. I'm still riding to the doctor. You know, the street. The dogs are licking the blood along the street. <laughs> Broman. <laughs> yeah, that's ages. That's ages uh, two to twelve. That's guys, girls, they just do crazy stuff, don't they? They usually run into it. Let's talk about the age of accountability because guilt's involved at this period of time. They actually come into something with regard to morality. Prior to that, they don't know what's right and wrong. They have no sense. They just control, trying to get control. They don't know what's right or wrong. But from here, from three on... They're starting to develop this mentality of something is right and something is wrong. Somehow it's, 
written in their hearts, the Bible tells us. In Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14 to 15, we get a little insight into the life of Jesus. The king is told to ask for a sign, and the king doesn't want to ask for a sign. And so uh, the the prophet says to the king, well, God's going to give you a sign. He says, uh, the the Lord will himself give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's talking about Jesus, so it's a prophetic word about Jesus. And he says, curds and honey, or that's yogurt and honey, sweetened yogurt, he'll be eating, he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. So he's sitting on his mum's lap. Jesus would be sitting on his mum's lap and he'd, she'd be feeding him honey and yogurt. And at that point of time, that young, he start to think there is right and there is a wrong. And Jesus is the only child that was ever born to a woman who decided at a very young age to choose the right and not the wrong. The only child came to an age of accountability very young and chose right, not wrong, because the seed of the father wasn't there. The line of Adam wasn't there. And so he could choose right, not wrong. We get the line of Adam in us, and so we choose the wrong, not the right. We have a, we have a bent towards the wrong. So that's called the age of accountability. Now, until the age of accountability, you know, the question is, you know, do little children, like this little one here, does he have a moral conscience? Does he have awareness of right and wrong? What if he, God forbid, what if he died? Would he go to heaven or would he go to hell? If he was an unbeliever, if his parents were unbelievers, what would happen to him? Now, the old thought was that, you know, if they're married to Christians, well, if the, if the child is a Christian from a Christian, well, it's a, you know, it's a Christian child. And, and that's why we used to do this, the christening, you know, the, the sprinkling of water. Because it was like a sign that they are Christian. So that they could be buried if they died when they were young, they could be buried in the Christian graveyard. Because they'd gone to heaven. But I don't, I don't believe that children that die under the age of accountability go to hell. It's not consistent with the scripture that they would go to hell. I don't believe that aborted babies go to hell. I believe there's millions and millions of young babies or men and women in heaven who've been aborted, never got to have a breath, but have gone straight, short-circuited to glory. And why is that so? This passage of scripture in Romans tells me quite clearly, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now, law is written on our hearts, but if there's no comprehension of law, there's no law there. There's no sense of right and wrong. When there is no sense of right and wrong, that wrong. the Bible says, where there is no law, no sin is imputed. Now, the word imputed is to be reckoned in, set against one's account, to lay one's charge or to impute. It means God doesn't look at a child that doesn't know what's right or wrong and say, you know, because of the sin of Adam, I'm going to send you to hell. If the child has no sense of right and wrong, there's no sin imputed, the Bible says. It's not, put a car, it's, it's not charged to his account. We sin and the wages of sin is a, given to us and the wages of sin is death. They're not sin because there's no law. However, from 3 to 12, this is the age of accountability comes where they become aware of moral guilt. They become aware that they have done something morally wrong. 
You know that sheepish little look. What have you done? And that look from a child, maybe three and a half, four, that they are aware that they have done something morally wrong. They have a sense of guilt inside. Friends, what does this tell you? It says, bring them to Jesus very early. Bring them to Jesus as soon as you can. If they've done something morally wrong and you, they told you a lie, sit them down and explain that Jesus wouldn't be happy with that. Talk to them about Jesus and ask them to ask Jesus to forgive them. Bring that into their lives at an early age. Bring Jesus to them early. Don't wait until they're teenagers and let them decide for themselves whether they want to go to church or not. That's negligent. Start at an early age and help them to deal with the guilt that they have because they're going to be feeling guilt from three onwards if, that's, if they're early learners. Bring them to Jesus early, not late. So children at this age have this, they become, a moral, become aware of moral law. In these early years, we need to bring them to Jesus. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, it says, Indeed, the Gentiles who have, do not have the law do by nature things required by the law. They are loyal for themselves, even though they do not have the law. So these are Gentiles. They don't have the law of Moses. So, but what does it say? It says, They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times Defend the, even defending them. And so it says the law of God is written on everybody's heart. So whether you're born in a Christian family or whether you're not born in a Christian family, you come to an understanding of the moral law of God because it's written on your heart. You're created with it. It's written in there. You become aware of good and evil. Okay, let's have a look at the second stage. It says in, in Psalm 34, verse 11, it says, Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So if there's moral understanding, then there needs to be moral instruction. So that immediately that a child is showing signs that there's some sense of guilt or some sense of you know, shame inside, there needs to be moral instruction. Come to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Don't expect that they were going to just develop that without your involvement. You are there because you're a parent and you are there to bring involvement into their lives to teach them. There has to be somebody to teach them. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, it says, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be graceful ornaments to your head and chains about your neck. So clearly in Proverbs, we get this whole idea coming that you've got to start, start instructing children at this age. They need to be hearing you. They need to be speaking to you. you know, zero to two, they're not going to listen to you. But from three onwards, they need to be taught to listen now. They know there's consequences. They need to be taught about moral law. They need to understand what it is to ask Jesus to forgive them. They need to bring them to that place early. Okay. You know, we, we did some, some weeks ago, we talked about, um, we talked about uh, the way you study the Bible. Fathers being present to train and mothers being present today means that you're going to have to give them instruction. Now, when we're studying the Bible, we look for, remember we look for five things. Look for things that are emphasized. Look for the things that are repeated. He said, look for the things that are related. Look for things that are alike. Look for things that are different. Remember us talking about that when you study your Bible? Look for those things. I'm going to talk about the repeated thing. If you t turn in your Bibles, Bibles to Proverbs, 
Just open it up to Proverbs. Go to Proverbs chapter 1. Have you got a Bible? Find it. I know it's a bit hard to turn yourself. I'll wait here while um, you find it. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 8. And we, ha- we have that statement there that, that your fathers and mothers are to teach and instruct their children. Go to chapter 2 verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. What does it start? It starts with, my son. Listen, what's the word? next word? My son, if thou wilt receive my words. An instruction. Go to chapter 3, verse 1. What does it start? My son. What else what does it say? Do not forget my. Okay, let's go to chapter 4, verse 1. What's it say? Hear my son. The instruction of the father. Okay. Go to chapter 5 verse 1. What's it say? Attend unto my wisdom, my son. Chapter 6 verse 1. Sorry? My son, he says, and now he's instructing you again. Number seven, verse one. My son, but look, how many times does the how many times does the writer to the proverbs has a uh, writer of the proverbs Solomon? How many times does he have to repeat himself so you get the point? This is the point. This is the point. Be present there to educate. Adults need to be present there to educate. They need to be saying, my son, come to me. It's time to get some education. My son, some instruction. Listen to the words of your mother. Listen to the words of your father. My son, sit down. Let me let, hearken to my, my voice. Listen to what I have to say. You have to be present to educate. You know what? We need to think about this because, you know, sometimes life is so busy that we are not present. We let other things educate our children. We let other things other people teach them the morality. We, we bring our kids to, to Sunday school and we think that the Sunday school teacher should teach them morality. No, the Sunday school teacher doesn't teach their kids morality. The kids have already got morality. What the Sunday school teacher does is just one little thing and reinforcing the idea of, 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 of God's word. You are meant to be there teaching on a daily basis and bringing them to account on a daily basis. So if you're looking at repeated things, and you go through, that was just the first word. If you go through those chapters and find out how many times in the chapters it actually says the same things, it's repeated over and over and over again. Be present for your children. You need to educate your children. Education is going to take place. So the text says, in the last verses, is, and fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And the word provoke is to rouse. It's only used twice. It's to rouse, to excite, to wrath, to provoke, exasperate, to anger. Now, you know, this is where it becomes silly. Because if you say to a child, don't do that, do something else, and they don't want to hear you, then they're going to get angry. They'll throw, throw a tantrum. And then the idea is that, well, don't, don't make them do what they don't want to do because they'll get angry and throw a tantrum. 
That is not what it's talking about. Don't let them do whatever they are and just make sure they're happy all the time. This is not what it's saying. It says, do not provoke them or excite them to anger. And the anger is different to the anger of I'm not getting my own way. The anger is a deep-seated anger on the inside because no one cares about them. You've got to love them and care enough to intervene. You've got to love them and care enough to take hold of them. You've got to love them and care enough to discipline. You've got to love them and care enough to say stop when they need to stop. You've got to love and care enough to chastise them. You've got to love and care enough. And if you don't do that, you're going to provoke them to anger. And it's not just anger because they don't get their way. It's anger because no one cares. And that anger comes up from the young people right up through the Middle Ages and they're out there on the street and they're killing people and they're maiming people and they're bashing people and they're screaming people and they're stealing stuff because they're angry because no one put boundaries around them ever. And a deep-seated anger rests with some angry, angry young men and angry, angry young women out on the street now. You can get, go and see them there. You run into them. Deep-seated anger. And where does it come back from? Because no one cared enough to put a boundary around them, to love them. So let's have a look at the question. The question is always, who's doing the training? Because training's taking place, whether you like it or not. Either you're doing it or somebody else is doing it. And last week I said to you, we got rid of the TV at three years old because our kids were learning to sing at the table. The jingles of the advertising. Oh, I like aeroplane jelly. And we thought, no, well, there's training going on there. There's an education that's taking place that we're allowing. So we decided, oh, no, we'll stop that. We'll take the TV away so they don't learn the adverts. They'll learn scripture and song. And we put scripture and song for them. Why? Because training is always taking place because they're in the mode of learning. And when children are in the mode of learning, they're picking up everywhere they're going. They're learning all the time. They're watching you, what you do, and they're modeling it. They watch what other people do, and they're modeling it. They watch the TV, and they model it. They watch what's happening in the magazines, and they model it. Wherever they are, they're picking something up, they're learning something, and they're modeling. They're just training the whole time. The question really is, who's doing the training? Because it's not whether there's training going on, it's who is doing the training? Who's present there training your children? Don't look at your children when they get to teenage years and say, oh, I did a turn out of that. You ask yourself the question, who trained them that way? Someone's doing the training. Do you care who's training? Or are you still dealing with issues of your own control and your own sense of distrust? See, if you're still an infant, how can you train others to be different? Okay, let's talk about two things just to be to close. These are two areas which we can really excite to anger in our children. The first one I called the switch. The switch. Because it, it's a change. Abdication of parental responsibility, responsibility provokes anger. When you abdicate your responsibility as a parent and let somebody else do that, you don't take responsibility of your parenting, that will provoke anger in the child. And one of the ways that you can do that is switch. A crisis occurs when children become adults and adults become children. There's a switch. You say, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. It happens in many, many relationships. You take an emotional breakdown, 
You take, a, you take a marriage breakdown, a spiritual breakdown in your life. And what that can produce is a sense of the strong person who was once strong now becomes emotionally, mentally, spiritually weak. And when they become weak because of the breakdown, there's a switch that takes place. And children do this, they do this in marriage breakdowns all the time. Mum and dad are fighting like kids. They're arguing like kids. It's terrible, the thing that's going on. And the children stand up. Stop your fighting. Trying to bring some sort of sense of control. Oh, dad's run off now and mum's sitting in the corner. She's emotionally distraught. She's all terrible. And so the child comes up. There, there, mum. It will be all right. The nurturing starts to flow from the child. I've had people come to me and say, oh, this person is so spiritually strong. And why are they so spiritually strong? Oh, when so-and-so and so and I had a, an argument, my child, five years old, came to me and said, let's pray about this, mummy. And thinks it's a virtue. In the child, that's not a virtue. It's a coping mechanism, and this child is losing their adult. They're, they're losing their childhood because they're becoming adult while you're being a child. This is serious stuff. You know what you're doing? You're changing. You're molding into this child a deep-seated, resentful anger that will come out later on in their lives. They'll stand up later on in their lives and say, I lost my childhood. I don't want to have kids anymore. You know, I wouldn't even have any children because I wouldn't want that happen to my kids. And that's what's happened. Did you know there's a legacy that comes with divorce and the legacy is this thing here. They start cleaning up the house, sweeping the floor. They cook the meal for a mother who's sitting or a father who's sitting there completely distracted by life. They're doing all the things that they have to do. They don't study. They don't do what they have to do for school. They just focus on their parents. Why? And they willingly do it because they love you. They pour themselves out for you. And you think, God, oh, they're being such a nice child. You know what you're doing? You're stealing and robbing their childhood from them because you will not go to Jesus and get comfort from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus. You're going to a child to get a comfort from them. The adult becomes the child and the child becomes the adult. Whoa, how dangerous is that? That produces deep anger. And some of you sit here today and you know that because you were there. You were doing that. You grew up like that. You grew up making adult decisions when your parents were making wrong choices. Childish behavior. And you tried to keep the control in your life. You couldn't trust them. You had to be the one that was trustworthy. You couldn't have them control because you had to have the one that was being in control because they were out of control. They were out of control and they couldn't be trusted. So you had to be trustworthy and you had to be in control. And you were a minor. Infantile behavior. Think back. What was it? When you become dependent, you're needing direction, support, nurturing physically and emotionally. Are you getting that from a child? It's all very nice, but it's really dysfunctional. You get that from Jesus. 
Bring Jesus into your life for life. Jesus is not something you do on Sunday. He's, he lives with you by the Holy Spirit and he walks with you. What for? So that you can find strength and comfort and help and needs. You can depend on him. If you can't get that right, you can't get it right at all in life. Jesus is not something you do on Sunday. He walks with you in life for life. So that you can walk with him and find strength in him. So that you can still maintain your parental responsibilities while your world is falling apart. And you can be mature, dependable, trustworthy, even though calamity has fallen upon you. Well, what do we want to do with kids? Oh, they're so impressionable, aren't they? Someone's training them. <laughs> yeah, it's flopping around everywhere, I know. Well, uh, what do they call this? A um, costume... Uh, what, what? Wardrobe? Wardrobe malfunction. Uh, it'll be good now? Thank you. Just put a nail on the back of it there. Okay. <laughs> so kids will willingly do this. You know, you don't get a child saying, oh, come on. You know, I've got, I got homework to do. I've got things to do. No, no, no. They'll grow up real quick. They'll grow up real quick. And they'll do all the parental things real quick. And they'll be the nurturer, they'll be the comforter, they'll be the advisor, they'll sit down and talk through your problems, they'll listen to you, they'll cook your meals, they'll make your toast, they'll bring it to you, they'll do all of that stuff for you and they'll do it without even, because they love you, they'll do that. They will be the adult for you. But you're instilling training. Who's really doing the training here? We grow up through life, we've got this all behind us, you know. We've got this in our lives, we've got it in our history, we've got it in our family of origin, it's all there. It's all there. And we, if, we, if we just ignore it and just look forward and say, okay, well, you know, think back now to the way you are and ask yourself the question, the reason why you are the way you are is probably because the training has taken place in the past which has not been the best. It's produced where we are today. It's time to get to Jesus, to get to Father God and change the pattern and change the way we do things. Okay, let's have a look at another one. We've looked at a crisis occurs when children become adults and adults become children. Here's another one. When parental abandonment on issues of parental responsibility takes place, that reproduces real anger. Let me, let me. When dad and mum stop being dad and mum, they'd stop being responsible for being dad and mum. So when I am no longer responsible for my kids, I let somebody else be responsible for my kids. That produces deep anger now. But let's break that down so we understand what that actually looks, that looks like. Parents lay the foundations to bring the kids to adulthood. Here's seven ways we do that. So I want you to just think about it. We're going to go through these slowly. This is the last slide, but I want you to think about this. If we do these things, we're going to make kids so angry, they'll be angry as hell. Okay? So do the opposite. But let's talk about these things. The first one is your behavior, how you live, the way you react. 
Whether you live peaceably or whether you don't live peaceably, whether you do things that destroy home life or whether you do things that enhance home life. Your behavior, whether it's worldly, fleshly, or demonic. And we know that demonic behavior is quite simply, you know, if you are uh, ambitious and angry and discordant, that's the Bible tells us in James chapter 3 that that's demonic. It's demonic. It doesn't, it's, wisdom is not from above, but it is worldly, it is of the flesh, and it's demonic. So when there's bickering and fighting in the home and you just don't care, mum and dad are yelling and screaming at each other all the time, that's demonic. That's divisive. It's antisocial behavior. Just do that and you're laying a foundation of anger in the lives of your children that will last a long, long time. What's the solution then? I mean, things just explode in my house. We're just not in control of our emotions. We just yell and scream at each other. We just learn to call each other names and stuff. It's just it's horrible. It just explodes. Well, take yourself away from the children to have that little explosion and sit down and start to learn to talk to each other sensibly, like human adults, not like squabbling two-year-olds. So this sort of behavior is one of the things that really produces drug addiction in young people. It produces drinking and alcoholism and, and sexual activity that you wouldn't why because they can't stand it they they leave the house because it's so horrible to stay in the house and they go into the world to find their peer group and they build their peer group around them well we'll deal about adolescence and why they do that in the next couple of weeks establish no boundaries number two establish no boundaries and don't reinforce those boundaries no consequences for this so if you want your kids to be really angry when they grow up, don't put any boundaries around them. Don't say there are some things you can do and some things you can't do. These are the things you can't do. And if you do the things that I tell you you can't do, these are the consequences that are going to happen if you break those rules. Don't put any boundaries around them. Let them do whatever. Let them discover their own selves. Let them to go through life and discover what life's all about. Let them be creative so that they come to the fullness of their own self-esteem. That's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Put a boundary around them. Show them that you care. Say, these are boundaries of safety. Reinforce them. And when they start to break those boundaries, let the consequences be right there quickly. Let them know that those boundaries have been broken and explain to them why they're being disciplined for breaking those boundaries. Because kids feel safe when somebody is in control and they can trust them that somebody else is looking after them. When you've, when you've abdicated that responsibility, you're putting a boundary and then following through with consistent Consistent consequences, they get angry inside. They can't trust you. Oh, you said, if you do that again, I'm going to throw you off the building. You don't mean that. You don't, if you keep on yelling in the back, I'm going to open the door and throw you out under the highway. You're not going to do that. What did you just tell them? The boundaries are rubbish and I'm a liar. I have no intention of throwing you out onto the highway. The child sits there and says, yeah, 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 bull, 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 bull. Doesn't believe what you're saying because you're never consistent. You're never consistent. You never follow through. When they broke it, they just did it. They did it again. You didn't chuck them out onto the highway as if. <laughs> what do they learn? Mum and dad just talk bull all the time. They don't really mean what they say. If you touch that again, I'm going to smack your hand for touching that. You're not to touch those things. Oh, well, just touch it again. And you know what? Nothing happened. I told you not to touch that. You squawked and screamed and you got angry. You didn't actually do anything. You never went up to them and said, don't do that. Oh, we don't want to smack them. 
Well, that would be the best thing you could do because you said you would. Can you be trusted? Are you telling them the truth? Says you are. Send them to their room. Put them in the corner. Tell them they're not going to play with their toys. Don't let them come and play with their toys after you said you're not going to play with your toys. Sit in the corner there. Don't let them get out of the corner when they want to get out of the corner. You sit them in the corner until they come to an understanding. You're the one who put the boundaries there and you care. So you just take away those boundaries. Don't put any boundaries down and don't consistently and you'll make them angry as sin. They'll get so angry inside, so cross at you because you can't be trusted. You can't, you're not consistent. And the rubbish that happens in teenage years doesn't build itself on teenage rebellion. It builds itself on building life in children who are consistently have no boundaries and have no reinforcement of those boundaries. Involvement is not balanced in their life. You want to make them angry? Get so involved in their life they can't breathe. Or don't even know where they are. Don't even care where they are. One or the other. If you're not consistent and measured in your involvement in their life, knowing when to step back from them and knowing when to step forward to them. If you're there all the time and you can't, oh, no, 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 he hurt himself. He's hurt himself. You never let him do anything. He goes running out there. Oh, let's stop him there. So protecting him, walking around after him everywhere he goes. You know, he can't run anywhere without you following him around because you're so scared he's going to hurt you. You're overly involved in his life. He's going to get angry at you by that. Let him run. Let him see. Watch him. You can still see him. You don't have to be right there holding him and protecting him against him. He's going to bang his head one day. He's going to trip one day. He's going to fall one day. That's okay. You're there, but you're not right in his face. But then if you don't care, you walk away, you just let play out there and you're not even there. You're, you're off doing something, watching Days of Our Life or something, whatever is on there. And then he's out there and he cuts his hand and he's crying. He doesn't know. And he's out there for three hours before you realise that he's cut his hand. He's hungry. You forgot to feed him. Oh, poor little darling was thirsty by the time I got to him. Lack of involvement. Or too much involvement. There's a balance. I know that this is hard stuff. Okay, you know, this, we should have a, a, a university course to do parenting before you actually get the child's here. It's like when you own a cat, you should actually ask all the neighbours if you're allowed to own the cat. Because that's where it's going to go and do its business, isn't it? In the neighbour's yard. So they, all the neighbours should agree to that before they get a cat, hey? Like getting the children. It's difficult. No one is saying to you that it's going to be easy. But when you take Jesus into this exercise, it gets easier because the Holy Spirit can lead you in this exercise. You take Jesus into life with you. You do not leave Jesus at church on Sunday. You, you walk with Jesus and say, Jesus, help me to be the best dad, to be the best mum that I can be for this child. This child is your child. And Lord, I want to train this child. I want to nurture this child. I want to put boundaries around this child. I want to be involved in this child's life, but I don't want to crush this child's spirit. Look at the control that you have in that child's life. Are you overly controlling? You're forcing it to do everything? Or do you just let it do its own thing? Control is non-existent. If the child wants to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, the child can go to bed at 10 o'clock at night. We'll just wait here until it's ready to drop. And then when it drops on the carpet, we'll gently pick it up and put it in my bed. 
Why? Because it won't sleep in its own bed. I sleep in its bed. What are you laughing for? What do you laugh for? My wife works with people. That's, that's what it's like. The child never gets disciplined. The child never has any restraints on it. They come to school and they run around in the in the in the childcare centre as though they are king muck, and they destroy everything in their place. And you try and confine, you can't confine them. They're not going to be held down. They're not going to be stopped. Why? Because we are in control and we are legion. <laughs> Seriously, they're demonic. You, you, th- you don't think that kids can get demons? You want to believe that. You want to go and have a work with my wife work sometime. You'll see some demonic kids. And why? why? Because demons find a home where there's no control. And they live there and habitate there. And they call their mates to come and live there as well. Until the whole house is just a, a place of discord and arrayed with violence and vice and disgusting things. Raising kids is difficult. So when it says children, obey your parents. And fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. This is deeper than just a few words on a page in Ephesians. This is life. This is life and how you live on a daily basis. This is how you interact with your kids and how you interact with your spouse on a daily basis. Summed up in a couple of words, which you glibly dismiss because it's talking about, oh, kids, so about your parents. Oh, we know that. We know that. No, 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 no. Think about that. Please switch your brain on. Think about that. Why is our world in such a mess today? Because divorce is so high today. Marriages are consolidator of relationships, not the commencement of relationships. 93% of those who come into marriage through cohabiting first end up in divorce or separation. That's the, that's the facts. That's the stats. So where there's divorce and separation, dad's not there or mum's not there or the kids are alone or they're at the training centre or somewhere else. So, you know, there's just a breakdown in the whole family unit. You know? We have a modern family now, though. If you're watching TV, it's the new modern family now. It's, it's got homosexual married couples. It's got people who have all kinds of things. You know, it's not like you used to think. You know, the nuclear family, well, that's an evil thing. Evil thing, nuclear family. We have a modern family now. Let's get the modern idea going in our... Look, I know what the modern idea looks like and I know what it's producing. Let's get back to what the Bible tells us. Let's get back to what the Bible says is the way to do things. Ineffective communication. You know, communication is an interesting thing. You know, it's just not talking. What's the difference between thinking and feeling? Is there a difference? Precisely. Absolutely. One is I'm thinking something like a cognitive thought or an idea. I'm having an idea. And feeling is emotion. You know, when we get to a point where our communication is is broken up to just I'm just going to tell you, and I just let all my stuff come out, and that's what I feel, that's what I think, it's all confused, we have ineffectual communication taking place. When you can slow your communication down and say, you know what I think? This is what I think. And talk precisely about the issue. And then you say, you know what that makes me feel like? 
This is what I feel. This is my emotional state. This is how I'm feeling. You're starting to slow the process of effective communication down so that you can actually communicate effectively. We had kids standing outside our place some years ago yelling and screaming. They had a party up in the house not, not far from us and these two teenage kids were outside our place and they were obviously having a lover's tiff or something and, and they were just shouting at each other. One would say, get! And the other one would say, no, you get! So that went on for some time. Five minutes. That was the breadth and depth of their dialogue. How deep was their feeling? What were the thoughts that were tumbling through their heads? Well, we know exactly what came out of their mouth, but they had no ability to communicate effectively. Why? Because they're dumbed down now. All of this is raw hatred and emotion. Just pour it out because they've never been trained to speak and to think and to tell and to articulate what really is disappointing them, what really is making them upset. You know, it's when you did A, B and C. When I saw those things A, B and C, I felt like you were saying to me, da, 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 da. There's no judgment involved in that. You're not saying you're a horrible or rotten person because you do. No, I'm just explaining to you what I'm seeing and explaining to you how it makes me feel. And where would you get those skills from? Mum and dad. That's the way mum and dad talk. You know, dad would come in and he's saying, you know, I'm sure I put my shoes at the front door. I can't seem to find them. Do you know where they are? I get really frustrated when I can't find my shoes. Now, that's saying and it's expressing. No blame. Where did you put my shoes? Every time I put my shoes down, you shake, you take them somewhere. You know, I take them all the time. Why are you yelling at me like that? I haven't taken your shoes. What are you talking about? Yeah, you have. You always touch it. You're just like your mother. You're always picking up things and putting them where they shouldn't be. Well, well, what are you going to talk like? You make your choice. But slow, the, slow the whole communication process down. You know, we get so caught up on what's happening. We don't even think about what we want to say and how what we want to express our emotion is so that we don't jump into judgment. We just go out there and shoot it off there, load the guns, kaboom, boom, 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 boom. And then the other person's ducked behind the door. Kids are watching. We're going, ah, shoot them down. Kids are sitting in the corner. They're going, oh, it's one of those times again. Let's get out of here real fast. Dad's going, oh, shut throw something across the room. Mum comes back, how do you dare throw it? I'm going to leave my house and you'll go, head off to Makes, makes about as much sense as that. Level of communication. Wait a minute. I'm talking about our home life. The way we talk to one another. I'm serious now. I'm deadly serious about that. Why? Because something's training your kids. And if you see the kids on the street that can't articulate unless they're punching something, guess what they learnt when they were at home? The way to get the point across to punch a hole through the fibro wall... The way to get an idea was to slap that person in the face. I'll tell him what I think. Slap, slap, slap. You didn't tell him anything. You just used your fist to slap him. <coughs> Number six, failure to care enough to supervise and monitor your kids. Think about it. 
This, is, this makes parenting really odd. Mate, do I have to do all of those things when I'm a parent? You want to make your kid really angry? Drop any of them. See what happens. Supervising. Where is Johnny? Well, it's good when they're little kids, you know. Jenny's out there and she locks the fish gate. They can't get in there. She's looking around. So we're doing something by the, on the van, getting the van ready for Monday night or something, and Johnny was playing on the front there. And then it's, he's gone. Where's Johnny gone? Oh, Max is screaming up and down the driveway on his bike, making lots of noise, but Johnny's able to disappear. He just turns on the viso shield and he disappears. He was there a moment and then he's gone. And then we've got a creek down there with water in it. You know, there's a bush there with snakes in it. There's rocks over there with spiders in it. There's a fence over there that he could probably climb because he's climbing. He was in the sink the other day. How did he get there? We don't know, but he got there. Those drawers, you know, are really good, hey? <laughs> climb up there. But he can make himself disappear. You know what? That's what happens. They just disappear. And they disappear and you're not asking the question, where are they? Or what happened to them? Or who are they with? And at the end of the exercise, you don't care because it's just too hard to, to worry about all that stuff. You abdicate. And when you abdicate, you instill a deep-seated anger. Because you don't care enough to ask the question, what's going on in your life and who are you with? Then you fail to build love and affection. Uh. Yeah, that sort of stuff. In the home. <laughs> you fail to build it. That tactile stuff. Get out. Get away from me. Get away. I'm watching the TV. Stop annoying me. Stop annoying me. You know, get off my... You know, all the kids are coming home and the kids are... All over my Dad, Dad, Mum, Mum. Oh, just shut up. I've got to get out of this place and shut the door. Don't come near me. Can't stand this any longer. It's funny, but you do it. We do it. We do it. We've had enough now. Enough now. The kids haven't had enough. They want to climb all over you. They want to touch you. They want to feel. They want to touch. It's just too much now. Too much. Get out of me. Oh, that we would just be embracing them and lifting them up and suffering the children to come up and showing them a, the warmth and the compassion and the love and the concern that they need. If you don't do that, they feel like you don't care about them. They, Why don't you love me? My daughter says, don't just pat me. Give me a hug. Love me. Love me. I think, oh, I've had enough loving now. Let me do what I have to do. I just love your daughter. Friends, four verses, four verses that deal with life. 
It just wrapped up with some profundity in there. Take this serious. You are building into the life of an individual when you're a child. Now, take a quantum leap now. You're all children. And God is your father. What's his behavior like? Completely selfless. Has always been selfless. He's always had your best interests at heart. Has he put boundaries around you? He put the boundaries in your heart. The law of God is in your heart. He put the boundaries there and let you know. And as soon as you break those things, he speaks to you about them. He's consistent every time he speaks to you about them. He talks to you, consistently talks to you. He punishes you some hardships that you go through because he's disciplining your life. Because he loves you. He's involved. He doesn't force you to obey him. He calls you to obey him. He's involved there the whole time, but he's not overly involved controlling you. He's just there, there speaking to you. Consistent. His communication is clear and precise. You can sit there and you can read it every day. He talks to you. And if his words abide in you and you abide in his words, you'll be doing everything he wants you to do. It's consistent. He supervises you and he monitors you and he builds love with you. What a father we have in Jesus. Amen. What a wonderful father. You know what? Let's emulate him. Let's copy him. Let's be like that. Amen? In our home. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you'd help us to think deeply about these things that we've talked about. Lord, there is so much that we need to know and so much we need to do, Father, that we cannot just do this um, without calling on you, Father, without speaking to you and talking to you on a daily basis. Jesus, come with us into our family lives. Come with us into our home life. Come with us into our children and to our parenting skills, Father. Come with us and help us to be the very best we can be, Lord Jesus, so that we can build within our li- the lives of those around us, Father. No anger, Father, but joy and peace and all the beautiful fruit of the Spirit, we pray. We ask these in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.